This is Maine Coast Doc Talk, a podcast bringing you the latest news and stories from Maine's working waterfronts. This podcast is brought to you by the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. I'm your host, Ben Martens. It's Tuesday, August 2nd. I'm Ben Martens. I'm here with Monique Coombs, and welcome to Maine Coast Doc Talk. Today, we've got an interview with the regional administrator for the Greater Atlantic Regional uh, body that manages fisheries, uh, the NOAA group, John Bullard. And uh, it's a really awesome interview. It's fantastic that John was willing to take the time out of his very busy schedule to pull that off with us last week. Um, so we'll be listening to that. But first, Monique, Hi, what's ben. in the news? Um, well, in terms of seafood, the thing that I wanted to kind of chat about today is poor Larry the lobster. So Larry the lobster was a, what we call in Maine, oversized lobster that ended up in Florida at a restaurant. And the gentleman that owned the restaurant put the lobster on the news, hoping for, you know, good marketing customers and all that jazz. And apparently someone did call in and reserve the lobster in a table. But before the family could eat the uh, large lobster, which they were saying was, oh man, do you remember like 17 pounds or something yeah, I, was it bigger than maybe that 13. i don't think it was that, that big. big and then yeah. um i actually read a couple of contradictory reports about how old he was but he was an older dude over 60 at least um and a couple of uh animal rights groups came in and saved the lobster and tried to have him shipped back up here to maine to the booth bay harbor aquarium and uh poor larry did not survive the trip uh, apparently, they put him in freshwater ice, which everybody here in Maine knows is a no-no. Ooh, yeah, that's yeah. no good. And some gel packs broke. And apparently, initially, FedEx refused the package or something, and it got sent back. Um, the reason I bring it up, though, is you and I both know, likely, definitely not a lobster from Maine because we have such strict regulations in this state. Um, oversized lobsters like that get returned to the ocean like they should be to keep on living. I don't even know if that guy could have made it into a trap considering the size. That's also true. Yeah. He probably would have been uh, hanging on on the outside. That's usually where the big guys come up. Um, so it's just kind of a bummer all around, you know, in Maine. We like to make sure that unique lobsters, lobsters with eggs and oversized lobsters go back to the ocean. Um, I heard Diane Cowan speak. She's a scientist here in Maine that studies lobsters. And she was telling me that um, lobsters apparently, maybe if left alone, might not ever die, which sounds really crazy. But if you think about it, they don't, I mean, what would kill them if they just kept going there was no predators or i mean eventually our cells give out but maybe lobster cells don't i, I, don't, I don't know too much about it but that's a little scary isn't that crazy giant lobsters there's huge it's like megalodon of lobsters down in the bottom of the ocean maybe yeah that's yeah because a... megalodon's real it was it is <laughs> okay <laughs> good to know um that was a giant shark just yes. for those that are uninitiated uh well, and so I think that that was kind of an interesting thing, that article that popped right away was everybody started associating with that lobster with Maine. Yeah. As soon as I read that article, I'm like, yeah, that was probably caught by a trawl fisherman out of Massachusetts, Massachusetts or something. Massachusetts or someplace, yeah. Um, and then put on the market and shipped around. And, you know, Maine's well known for its lobster, but lobsters landed in, in a lot of their places and in a lot of 
other fishing techniques. Um, gill nets, there's uh, gill net lobster, there's lobster that come up in trawl nets, those kind of things as well in other states. So um, yeah, it was interesting that it became a Maine lobster very quickly and then was tried to be shipped up to Maine and was killed anyways. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, one thing all us Mainers know, too, is oversized lobsters like that are not the uh, the best-tasting lobsters. Yeah, they so that guy probably avoided a pretty bad pretty, dinner. Yeah, they get really mealy and sort of tough and um, not as sweet as the smaller lobsters. And everybody that knows anything knows that they should um, make it main and make it new shell. Oh. Is that the, is that that's the, the Maine that's Lobster the... Marketing Collaborative. That's what they're pushing for. And I have to say, though, they're they're right. You know, Maine soft-shell lobsters are the way to go. No, I think they are delicious. They are my preferred lobster. We might need to work on that saying a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> you go ahead and tell them. All right. I'll, I'll chat with them about branding because I'm an expert at branding. Um, well, cool. So that's, that's a... A sad story. About a sad poor, story. Poor Good intentions ended poorly. Indeed. I always think it's funny because with lobster, every every year or so, there's usually some uh, either environmental group or a lot of times it's been Tibetan monks that really? want to put them back into the ocean. Like yeah. as a, um, you know, they get saved, they get put back in the ocean. I remember a couple of years ago they did that in Gloucester and the fishermen that I knew down in Massachusetts thought it was so funny because they were letting these lobsters go and the guys went out and put their lobster, their yeah. traps right out in the ocean and caught them again. Caught them again, yeah. 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 So, but uh, anyways, good story and uh, some good lessons to be learned from that experience. So my uh, article in the news, there's a couple of, of big things that took place over the past few weeks, but um, one of the things I wanted to just highlight is uh, something we've been talking about over time is the climate change, warming waters. Codfish, we've talked about the codfish populations in, in the Gulf of Maine. And there's been this new study that came out talking about the impacts of climate change on cod populations uh, and how there might be in, in the North Atlantic a similar oscillation to El Nino. We know all about El Nino, how it makes the water warm over in the Pacific, causes all kinds of, of issues with the climate and uh, stuff that lives in the ocean because it gets so warm, but there's actually an oscillation that takes place in the North Atlantic as well. And this recent study is showing that there's a direct correlation with the survival of young cod and that oscillation. And uh, I thought that was a really interesting thing to look at because it might be a predictor for what's happening as our water gets warm, but there's other things that happen with the oscillation, whether it's um, you know, for the, the feed or the nutrients in the ocean. There's a lot of other pieces to that. But oftentimes we either say overfishing is causing a problem or climate change is causing a problem, right? We're very black or white when it comes down to it. But one of the, the outstanding parts of, of this article that I read about this study was that uh, there's a quote that says that the, the study does something new in that we follow the effects of climate variability on cod throughout their life cycle, uh, but we also found evidence suggesting that through fishing, humans' actions are exasperating this problem, right? So the oscillation is a problem, it's impacting the, the cod stock populations, but the human fishing is also having an impact and potentially making the issues that come up within the oscillation bigger. And uh, hopefully, as we can predict this oscillation, you can start to incorporate that kind of data into stock assessments, into the decision-making in the policy world, and, uh, and plan for that future. So if you know it's coming, you say, hey, maybe we take a few less cod out of the ocean this time of year, 
and that might be a way to preserve and protect the, the fish stock for the long term. So I thought that that was a pretty interesting because we often like to point blame at either the fishermen or climate change or whatever other thing. And in reality, it's, it's a much more complicated uh, situation out there in the in the Gulf of Maine and in the ocean. Any thoughts, Monique? No, I think that all makes sense. I mean, really and truly, like you said, it's really looking at the whole big picture and not just picking apart pieces. And if we can all work together and problem solve, obviously that's going to make much more sense than trying to point fingers and place blame. Definitely. So Monique, I think that's pretty good for today. We're going to hop into our interview with John Bullard, and it's a a bit of a long interview with John. He uh, has a lot of great stories to tell about his position and the work that he's done and where he thinks that Maine and New England fishermen are going. So we hope you enjoy the interview, uh, and I'll be back at the end to read some credits. I'm here with John Bullard, the regional administrator of NOAA Fisheries uh, in the greater Atlantic region. So John, welcome to Maine Coast Doc Talk. We really appreciate you joining us in Maine for the day. It's always nice to be in Maine. Nice to be with you, Ben, again. Again, yes, indeed. And uh, so John, quick background on you. Um, John is, as I said, the regional administrator of NOAA Greater Atlantic um, region, which means that he is managing the area from Maine to Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. And uh, he joined NOAA in 2012 after you retired, which is an interesting uh, little note because I don't know that this is what I would want to do with my retirement. Hmm. But um, before that, you were the president of the Sea Education Association. Uh, Previous to that, you worked for the Clinton administration down in D.C., which is pretty cool. And, uh, and while you were there, you were doing NOAA's Federal Office of Sustainable Development um, and uh, some other work for them on for NOAA as well, I believe, correct? Yes, uh, I worked for NOAA I, uh, from 93 to 98. I had basically two jobs. One uh, was working with the President's Council on Sustainable Development, trying to understand what that concept was and uh, develop policies on how to achieve environmental restoration, economic opportunity, and uh, social equity uh, around the country. And the other one, more germane to fishing, was to uh, administer uh, economic relief to uh, fishing communities that were uh, uh, affected by fishery collapses. First of all, in New England, then in the Gulf of Mexico, the Pacific Northwest, and and Alaska. Uh, and uh, that's when there was uh, money to do that. Uh, we developed programs with uh, fishermen uh, that totaled, I don't know, a couple hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. And, and the programs were as varied as the ideas that we got from fishermen, from fishermen's health care, uh, to habitat restoration, uh, and again, all over the country. And and before that, you were the mayor of New Bedford as well for, how many do you were, eight years? Uh, I, no, I was a mayor for three uh, two-year terms, six years in the late gotcha. 1900s. <laughs> yeah, late 1900s. Uh, and so... All that is to say, you've got a very diverse background, but most of it links back into fisheries at one point, in one way or another. Um, And you and I were just talking a little bit about your love of sailing as well, and and your time on the water there, and growing up in New Bedford, I think instills a love of the fishing industry. Uh, So I'd love to just kind of hear a little bit about 
why you actually ended up applying for and then eventually accepted this position of regional administrator um, in New England and for, for this area, because as I said, you had retired and now you're taking on this job. What got you to that point? So, uh, well, I am uh, from New Bedford, and uh, before I was mayor, I did historic preservation, and um, and and so I have uh, a strong association with uh, with one city, uh, New Bedford, which, as I describe New Bedford to many people. I mean, I took a, a tour of, uh, of college students this Saturday to, to New Bedford. So I've described the city to hundreds and hundreds of times to people. I've got it down to one word, you know, we're a seaport. Uh, we've always sent our people to sea. And, uh, and I love the ocean. And, and New Bedford is a working waterfront. And that's its essence. People go to sea. Uh, and working waterfronts, unfortunately, are uh, endangered. Uh, I, when I worked uh, uh, for NOAA the first time uh, in a visit to Gloucester, a former mayor that there said, you know, fish populations go up and they go down. And when the populations go down, uh, the, the fishing-related uses go down. Uh, and when the populations go up, the fishing uses don't go up. Uh, he <laughs> described kind of a ratchet effect, uh, which is the processing plant turns into condos, but the condos never turn into processing plants. Uh, and it's like on, on land, uh, the farm turns into the mall, but the mall never turns back into a farm. So it's a, it's a one-way ratchet. Uh, and um, and, and so if you think about that um, and you think about the value of working waterfronts and how much energy there is and how important they are, um, not just for food production, which is very important because fish protein is the best protein you can get in, in a person's diet, uh, but the energy and in New England, it's, it's what defines New England. I mean, if, people if you ask someone to close your eyes and imagine New England, you know, three-quarters of the people are going to conjure up an image of a, of a waterfront. And, uh, and so uh, if these uh, processing plants and uh, working vessels tied up uh, to piers uh, are giving way uh, to uh, condominiums and artist colonies and other things like that, then, then we're losing something that is essentially our soul and what defines us. And, and, uh, and so that is something that uh, uh, I just don't want to have happen. And so uh, when I left uh, Sea Education Association in 2012, um, and, and someone who uh, I thought was my friend said, uh, why don't you uh, t take uh, this job at um, uh, the regional office of, of uh, National Marine Fisheries Service um, I, in lieu of retirement? Well, you know, I don't play 
golf anyway. I mean, very well. I hit everything into the woods, which is good if you like nature walks. But, you know, I still have energy, and I thought uh, I can add something to it. And uh, so I applied, and, uh, and I think I was the only person who applied. That's probably why I got the job. Uh, That's always, those are nice yeah, odds, right? Yeah, So because uh, I was the only one dumb enough to do it. Uh, so, uh, but it was really out of a concern that, um, that there's uh, significant challenges that we face, and uh, if I have something to offer, I want to offer it. No, I, I love that answer of asking somebody why they decided to do what they want to do. And you basically just said, because you want to protect the soul of New England. Yeah. And I think that that is kind of beautiful. Well, I, I, went, uh, uh, I went to a uh, meeting uh, in Washington a few years ago. Uh, it was with senior executives and the president. And I thought there'd be, you know, a dozen of us uh, in the room. Uh, Turns out there was, uh, you know, several thousand. But still, one of the things he said is there's no greater opportunity to help people than to be in the positions in which we serve. What an incredible privilege. Uh, I wrote that down. I have it right on my wall. I absolutely believe that. What a privilege. We're in a position where we can help people. And that is a privilege. I believe that in my bones. And uh, every day at work, you know, that's the approach I take. And that's the approach everyone at Garfo takes, uh, that we're in a position, we're lucky enough to be in that position uh, where we can help people. And, uh, and it, it is, uh, it's a privilege. And so kind of thinking about that, you, you've, I think you've outlined really great the, the bigger idea of what you want to be doing as a collective whether it's the regional administrator or garfo staff and whatnot but for you as an individual what did you as you were walking into this job think that you wanted to accomplish right you're only going to be here for x number of years um what was high on your list of issues that you wanted to tackle and that you thought that your skill set your background um, made you uniquely able to address well, uh, in 2012, uh, when various folks uh, said, you should uh, uh, take this position, uh, then it was called the Northeast Region, now it's the Greater Atlantic Region, um, it was uh, a position that was under attack. Uh, and um, uh, the industry, uh, uh, you know, w was extremely distrustful of everything coming out of NIMS. Uh, Congress was very upset uh, about the crisis in groundfish. Uh, the press was all over it. Uh, people in uh, headquarters in Silver Spring were, you know, essentially demanding reports every day of the week. Uh, there were calls every week to assistant secretaries in, uh, uh, in, in uh, Washington and the governor of Massachusetts, you know, what's going on. Uh, it, it was, uh, uh, you know, it was a place that was pretty much under attack from all quarters, the press, Congress, 
headquarters, the industry, the NGOs, and um, and I got calls. Uh, <laughs> you know, in one week, I got a call from uh, Congressman Barney Frank, who I'd known for I don't know 30 or 40 years, and and Environmental Defense Fund saying, John, you've got to take this job, and. Uh, you know, they don't agree on what day of the week it is. Sure. And I, I went to uh, uh, Administrator, Undersecretary Jane Lubchenco, and said, I don't know what I bring except those two parties both agree. It's probably the only time they'll ever agree, and probably the, by the second week I'll have them both ticked off at me if I do take this job, which I think probably happened. But, uh, you know, I've, I've been around long enough, and I have... A long enough track record. You know, when I was mayor, I worked very closely with the fishing industry. After I was mayor, uh, the reason I stopped being mayor is I lost my job for for bringing clean water to New Bedford by building a sewer plant. And so, you know, if if I'm talking to environmentalists, I can say, you know, if you guys have lost your job over a clean environment, then let's talk. But I was willing to lose my job, so, you know, I'm committed to an environment. And after that, I worked uh, organizing fishermen for six months. And so I built up relationships with fishermen. So I know and have relationships over decades with a lot of people. And I'm a known quantity. I, you know, I, I didn't... That's what happens, I guess, if you're old. Is, is, you hang out long enough, people get to know you. hang out long enough, everybody knows you. And, and so, uh, uh, so you, you know, what happened, and because I have an incredible deputy in Dan Morris, and because there are unbelievably smart staff at Garfo, uh, I was able and did... Uh, spend all all my time going out and listening to people, and what I found was uh, something interesting. Ben, uh, everyone seemed to hate nymphs, but when you said, "Well, what do you think about this individual?" You know, what do you think about Sarah Heil, who, who works in Groundfish? Or, or what do you think about Mike Pentney? Or what do you think about George Darcy? You know, you just pick any individual. Oh, wow, they're great. You know, as soon as you named a person, wow, they're great. So let me see. You like every single individual. You just don't like the concept of nymphs. Oh, yeah, I guess that's it. So it was interesting, as I listened to a lot of people, that all of the individuals that make up now Garfo, everyone really liked all of the individuals. They just didn't like the whole entity. So I said, well, let's go with that, all right? We got lots of good people. We just have something going on where the, ent the whole, we have a you know, we've got a problem with trust, we've got a problem with something, so let's work on that. So I spent, you know, all my time in hotel rooms, on the road, listening, you know, what's happening. But we also had a problem in some of the fisheries, namely ground fish especially, with uh, 
uh, you know, a crisis, and we had some tough decisions to be made. And I, I started to, you know, carry around a pad. What are the fires I have to put out? You know, and I made my, said, what's my top 10 list? And New England groundfish was number one, but it wasn't the only one that made the top 10 list. You know, sturgeon was one. I went mm. down to the mid-Atlantic and Dr. Lewis Daniel from North Carolina blew out both my eardrums yelling at me about why did we list sturgeon? And then river herring got to be a problem, you sure, know, yeah. with the NGOs suing us uh, on, you know, why we weren't going to list river herring, which is still an issue. And then, the, you know, we had budget issues, and, and harbor porpoise was an early uh, issue that, uh, you know, what are we going to do? We're closing down, uh, and I had my good friend Carl Safina, <laughs> who I thought was a good friend, you know, ripping me a new one uh, over his podcast uh, on National Geographic. And then seals were an issue, and and uh, dogfish. So that was my top, what is it, seven. Never got to ten. And so, you know, I, I said, what are, the, what are the fires? And, uh, and so we're going to attend to what are the major fires and, and address them. Um, so actually, let me, let me stop yeah. you for a quick second there. Because I, I think this is an interesting concept and something I deal with all the time, right, is fire comes up and yeah. you've got to put it out. And a big part of my yeah. job and your job is being firemen, right? Yeah. How do you keep the ball moving forward down the field when there's a constant blitz distracting you um, yeah. from the different well, corners? It, I, I think for me, it wasn't a case of, of being distracted. It was a case of uh, what is most important here. And so... Um, uh, ground fish was very important, but one of the other things we did was to, uh, I asked folks, I said, I, I want to get a sense of where the money is. And we started to measure, uh, what's the dollar volume by species and by port. And so we started to say, okay, well, lobsters and, and scallops are each, uh, 500 million roughly, uh, ground fish is 60 million roughly. So, oh boy, ground fish is creating an awful lot of noise, but scallops and lobster are almost 10 times what that is. So let's keep that in mind in terms of what's bringing in money, which might be a proxy for jobs and economic activity. Let's not lose sight of that. And let's make sure everybody doesn't lose sight of that. Uh, and uh, aquaculture, $223 million, and growing by $60 million in one year. It grows by as much as what ground fish is. So let's also keep that in perspective, because our investment in aquaculture is pretty small. And here in Maine, or Maine and Virginia, you know, that's, uh, that's huge, and in terms of economic opportunity for people, younger generation especially, uh, that's, uh, that's significant. So I think that it helped us get focused, but there's no question that uh, groundfish became something that 
we have to put a lot of attention on this for a lot of reasons because um, it's a difficult problem. It, uh, uh, it's a different, difficult problem from a biological standpoint. It's uh, a difficult problem from an economic standpoint. There are a lot of families that are really hurting, uh, a lot of communities, therefore, that are really hurting, and uh, it's a difficult problem uh, politically. Uh, so we need to put a lot of attention on that, and we have put a lot of attention on that. Uh, so, uh, and we've got very good people working on that. Uh, so, so has, has groundfish moved up or down the uh, the it top? It started 10 list? at the top of the list, uh, and I would say, you know, we have different teams working on different uh, issues. So, for the folks working on groundfish, yeah, it's their top priority. But there are a lot of people who are working on other problems. Yeah, no, and that's and that's great. I think that that's one of the things that um, you know we often forget about you and your office is there are so many things that fall under you know what you're looking at whether it's aquaculture or river herring um you know monkfish groundfish scallops all these different things all kind of fall under there and um when we're knocking at your door it's usually because we need to yell at you about something in the groundfish fishery so um and so to kind of move away from from that um but stay in the same vein is i'd love to hear a little bit more about you have some experience and background in working with the industry, and I feel like that was one of the big things that you wanted to bring to um, this position when you came on board was further engagement with the industry. What has it been like trying to get the industry to the table when you have to be looking at that big picture and you are sitting at a table when you are representing the NGOs, the constituents in throughout New England, um, the region, elsewhere, but also the fishermen? How do you start to have real discussions with the fishing industry um, when some of them, as you said, were on the brink of going out of business, losing their houses, losing their boats? Well, I think the first, uh, that's a really important question. And that was uh, uh, the first thing I really set out to do because uh, so many of our external relations were absolutely broken. including and and really most importantly with the industry that we regulate and uh, and so uh, and the Magnuson Act which I am such a fan of I think Warren Magnuson and and my very good friend Gary Studs I mean my first exposure to politics was working for Gary Studs in in uh, in 1970 Uh, and it was for a while the Studs Magnuson Act. And uh, I think it's genius because it is so participatory. You know, it's not the Clean Air Act, it's not the Clean Water Act, it involves the people who are regulated. Uh, and it, it is uh, a law that, that I love, even though it, it's frustrating and how long it takes and all that because it's, it's democratic. Um, but it is based on mutual trust and mutual respect, and it is and uh, and the involvement at every step along the way of all stakeholders. Now, in the in the early 70s, when Warren Magnuson 
and others put this together. That was just the industry. Uh, now there are a lot more stakeholders. I mean, the, in the environmental community, they were only interested in warm, fuzzy things on land back then. Now they're also realize there's a wet part of the planet, so they're interested in the ocean now too, which is good. Late to the party, but good. Uh, and so, um, so early on, it, it was a lot of listening and saying things are, are going to be different, and uh, and I want to understand your point of view, and I want to do what I can to help, but that does not mean that the decisions we make may be decisions that you like. Uh, and uh, I think the Harbor Porpoise decision was... Um, was very important early on. Uh, the ground fish industry came to us and said, we have some data, you're, you're gonna close us. We think we have some data that shows you can make this decision in a way that will be okay for Harbor Porpoise. The, the uh, NGOs went uh, through the roof. Uh, we looked at the data, we thought uh, the industry had a point. Um, we uh, did a closure in a way that benefited uh, the industry. Uh, we lost some big name environmentalists from the take reduction teams. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it proved uh, to be uh, one that uh, allowed fishermen to keep fishing that uh, in no way hurt harbor porpoises. Uh, but uh, I, it was respectfully listening and looking and following the data, but it was uh, respecting uh, good information that came from the industry. And, um, and I think that uh, that showed the industry that we weren't going to have a knee-jerk reaction to them that, oh, if you offer us data, it's, it must be corrupt. You know, it said, no, we're going to listen to you. Uh, and, uh, but we also, you know, showed that, uh, that we were going to, in uh, cod closures or emergency actions, you know, we did one interim action on cod, and when they asked for another one, we said no, you know, but we listened. And uh, uh, we fought for them, uh, with them, uh, on disaster money, and we listened to them on how it would be applied. So, you know, there was just lots and lots and lots of, of discussion and talk and back and forth, no matter what the problem was. And so it's, it's pretty hard when you, you know, sit face to face with someone and you go back and forth all the time and you have beers after the meeting all the time, not to eventually develop a relationship with someone where you say, all right, you're a human being. You know, I know who you are and I like you as a person. And, uh, you know, pretty soon that, that, you know, you develop a bond there where some kernels of trust can start to be developed, you know, that you keep your word and, uh, you know, you let people know what you're going to do and you let people know the reasons why you're doing it. And, and I think that's what's started to develop. But it's, 
it's uh, you try and be transparent, you try and be accessible, and uh, you know, respect is a big part of it. Yeah, and I think that's something that unfortunately we in New England, especially, are still struggling with. And I, I think that you and your office have been doing a great job of trying to reach out to the industry, just from what we've seen in Maine uh, in the groundfish community that we work with. Um, but we still seem to be having less and less fishermen showing up to meetings and being involved. There's the same ones that show up over and over yeah. again. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know that I really have a question here on this one, but it's, it's mostly just the idea that I think it's what the sentiment that you're saying of involvement in relationship building and getting fishermen to the table and that Magnuson was created with that, that idea of their involvement um, is really, really important. But we are still seeing less and less fishermen get involved, uh, which I think is a really disappointing place for us to be right the, now. The, you know, every time uh, a fisherman goes to a meeting um, is, is some kind of triumph uh, over cynicism, uh, especially in groundfish, because, you know, the groundfish industry is so tough. Uh, look what we've done to the quotas on on the, some of the major species. You know, it, it is so tough, and there's a lot of reason for discouragement. Uh, and um, and so, uh, and fishing's a tough business. It's a tough business. It takes a lot of your energy. It takes a lot of your time, and uh, and so. To, to take more energy and more time to go to a meeting is, that's hard. Uh, and that's why uh, uh, fishermen's wives associations have been so important is because, the, you know, and, and I'm sorry about the, the gender, you know, aspects of this, but that's been part of the fishing industry. There is a strong a history time. of that in, yeah. in throughout New England. But, so. but that's been one of the characteristics of this industry, uh, and that's been one of the, the aspects of, of this and one of the reasons fishermen's wives associations have been so important is they, you know, when husbands have been out to sea for five or ten days, somebody's, you know, who goes to the meetings? That's one of the tremendous uh, values, I think, of going to uh, uh, a sector-based system is there's sector managers now uh, who are smart business people uh, who represent fishermen. We didn't have that before with the Days at Sea folks. Uh, I, I spent not a long time, but six months trying to organize fishermen. That was my job when I worked for the New Bedford Seafood Co-op. Uh, Jerry Wheeler was my boss. He said, go organize the fishermen, you know, from uh, New England. Uh, you know, I know, that's not easy. Uh, and Because uh, <laughs> fishermen are fiercely independent people. Plus, they're out at sea most of the time. So how do you organize fiercely independent people, many of whom speak Portuguese or Italian, and uh, say, uh, let's get organized and all agree on one position uh, so that I can represent you at the council? Huh, not an easy thing to do. Uh, so sec the sector managers are another huge asset 
uh, that's been in place for, for a couple of years. But when a fisherman uh, himself or herself shows up in a meeting, that's a, that's a triumph. And I don't know that they understand the value that they that they actually bring to that meeting. A lot of times they feel like this token, they, they're just not being heard. But uh, you know, when we do get fishermen to show up, yeah. I, I always feel like there's a great response to yeah. them. So uh, so I want to be respectful of your time. And so I've got one one last question that I want to tee you up for because mm-hmm. I know this has kind of been a, a big issue for you when you came into office and we haven't talked about it. Um, but climate change yeah. and the idea of climate change and that's something that's fishermen have been talking a lot more about since in your tenure of, of being at the as a regional administrator and partially that's because I think you have been talking about it a lot more partially it's because we are seeing such dramatic changes out on the water but what do you think what have you been doing in your office and then in working with the science center to help prepare New England and the region mid-Atlantic for these shifts in climate that I think we're all starting to experience um, I think this the past six months have been hotter than any other six months in history, right? Yeah. Like it's just keeps on happening over and over yeah. again. So, well, it's a, it's a big issue, and um, and I think that uh, part of leadership is uh, to recognize a threat and recognize the magnitude of the threat. Uh, so that you can uh, formulate a response that's adequate to the threat. Um, And, uh, you know, to recognize that climate change is, uh, you know, not going to be solved by uh, one uh, compact fluorescent. You know, it is uh, much, much bigger than that. Uh, And so... um, you know, and every time I look at my grandkids, uh, I get motivated by, uh, you know, what more can I do? So in my job, uh, part of, uh, of what I do at, uh, at every appropriate and huh, more than a few inappropriate times uh, is uh, uh, try and sign, sound an alarm bell because I happen to find it an alarming situation. I mean... We've never had 400 parts per million CO2 in uh, well over a million years, which is uh, far longer than humans have been on this planet. So if you don't find that alarming, then I don't know. Uh, uh, but there are an awful lot of people in, in positions of power who, uh, who who seem to think that just because it's a normal day outside today that it's uh, normal and, and not doesn't warrant action. And, um, and that uh, should be cause for concern. Uh, because just as you mentioned, uh, 2016 is uh, going to be another record year. First six months are. And it's, uh, NOAA scientists have said that's not due to El Nino. Um, so um, uh, fishermen uh, see this uh, because fishermen are... Uh, trained observers. The Gulf of Maine is warming faster than uh, any other body of water on the planet. And fishermen know about temperature and they follow it and fish know about temperature, they react to it, and fishermen react to the movement of fish. So uh, 
fishermen are on the front lines. And one other thing I'd say, and I mentioned this at the fisheries forum, is, uh, is the fishermen have a voice that may be more powerful in this than, uh, than the Al Gores of the world or even the scientists of the world. I wish that policymakers would listen to scientists, but I don't know. Uh, they don't seem to. Um, but I think uh, policymakers listen to fishermen because fishermen aren't seen as ideological. Uh, they're just seen as regular, honest, hardworking people. And uh, so one thing I, I think uh, that we might consider is fishermen saying, if you want us to put food on your table, then maybe you all ought to stop making our place of business such a hostile environment by changing the temperature and changing the chemistry because you're making it harder for us to go put food on your table. And, uh, and fishermen ought to consider saying that with a little more volume uh, and a little more persistence. And when I said that at the forum in March, um, people said, well, that's not fair. Uh, to put that pressure on us. But that's what leadership is about. It's not fear. I, I talk about climate change so much people think I have, you know, a tinfoil on my head. And, but, you know, this is an emergency and, uh, and it's going to affect us. And anyone who's got uh, a uh, platform needs to use it. Um, and the Gulf of Maine is warming. Uh, and anyone who who uses that for their office needs to be concerned. We had uh, one of our fishermen, Randy Cushman, out of Port Clyde. He called me two weeks ago, and he said that compared to last year, the water was five degrees warmer. And then he called me last week and said, uh, from last year at this point, seven degrees warmer. Yeah. No, I've heard figures. My first listening session in Ellsworth, I heard numbers. This was in 2012, which was a very warm year in Ellsworth. Uh, like that, but but uh, bigger, uh, and uh, so I'd say beyond fishermen telling people that, um, I, I would say there are a number of things specifically we can do. Uh, the Science Center and Garfo are uh, working uh, to gather in as much information as we can. There's climate strategy. Uh, there are ecosystem-based plans that are being developed. Uh, every fishery management plan uh, needs to have um, uh, climate change factored into the setting of quotas. Uh, that is happening. Uh, there's a climate strategy now that's out for public comment through the end of the year. Fishermen should, uh, through you, uh, Ben, uh, look at that. But I think there's probably uh, three things uh, in general that we should think about. Uh, because resilience is the key. Uh, one, um, I, we're going to need to have responsible quotas uh, because we're going to have to have healthy fish stocks uh, to deal with uh, uh, the impacts of changing temperature and uh, ocean acidification. Uh, now, changing temperature causes fish to move that means some fish will leave this area, some fish will come into this area. So maybe the concept of winners and losers will work. 
So maybe that's a good thing in some cases, maybe it's a bad thing in some cases. In lobster, uh, I think there are probably folks in Maine who have a keen in- interest in lobster. That'd be a wild guess on my yeah, part. Yeah, no, we do. We care about lobster a little yeah, bit. Yeah, 82% of the revenue in Maine comes from lobster. Yeah, it's so, not more in any given year. Yeah. So. so there's no lobster south of the Cape. Uh, Pat Kelleher, the commissioner, who I have a huge amount of respect for, asked a lot of questions down at ASMFC, saying, I think what's happening in southern New England you know, can be the future of Maine. Um, And so I want to, he said, he wants to understand an awful lot of ecosystem relationships because lobster's on the move in Maine and uh, because of temperature change, because lobsters are moving. Keith Colburn said, easy for him, he's a big guy from Alaska. You you remember, I'm sure, what he said. You guys want to keep chasing lobsters. You better get your Canadian passports, right? I'm sure that went over well. Uh, here. A, lot, but, a lot of nervous people in that audience. Yeah, well, they should be. That was standing room only. Uh, so one thing, we have to build uh, strong biomass to deal because I don't see winners and losers necessarily in ocean acidification. Uh, uh, I'm not a scientist on that, but if you acidify the ocean, anything that's trying to take carbon and build a shell out of it's going to have trouble. That includes lobster, scallops, other things like that, pteropods. So that's one issue. The second issue is we need to protect habitat. And, uh, and there are many ways to do that. But uh, both councils that we work with, the Mid-Atlantic, uh, the New England, have, are doing an awful lot of work in habitat plans and deep sea coral protection plans. We're doing a lot of work in the rivers, dam removals, other things like that to protect habitat, so that's a key thing. And then the third thing I'd say, uh, and in Maine, uh, you guys are really good at this, is that people have to diversify their income uh, streams. Uh, So anyone who says, I'm just gonna catch cod, and uh, that's where I'm gonna build my family budget, you know, that's probably a recipe for disaster. Uh, And again, Maine has always been, you know, or at least it used to be. Used to be. It used to be. Used to be, yeah. You know, I'm going to do some gill net, and I'm going to do some shrimp, and I'm going to catch some cod, I'm going to do some lobster, and I'm going to do some nail bang, and I'm going to, you know, harvest some blueberries. It was a it was a really resilient, diverse family budget. And, um, and there are some really healthy stocks, George's Bank, Haddock, Pollock, Redfish, uh, that, that can be harvested. Uh, but and there are some stocks that really need to be rebuilt. So just within fishing, we need to diversify. Uh, I, but uh, you know, aquaculture development here in Portland. Uh, the last time I, I spoke to a conference here, there's 400 people in this conference. Average age, I'm guessing, was in the low 40s. You know, that's exciting. Uh, so I. I Maybe we'll have a, a, a seaweed dinner tonight, you know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. So, we can uh, go find some, I think. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'll have to cultivate that taste. <laughs> but uh, so, uh, and even that, I know, can be over-harvested. That's another controversy. I shouldn't have waded into that one. Uh, but uh, Aquaculture, though, not necessarily harvesting right, concrete. Right. right. Yeah. 
but I think diversification is, is an important component to uh, one of the components to how we deal with it. And, uh, and let me add a fourth, and that is from a, uh, a community standpoint, uh, and the Science Center has done a, a community vulnerability assessment. I may not have the, the term exactly right, but the social science branch has gone and assessed from a community standpoint vulnerability. Uh, and they've started with a few communities. They're going to go uh, and expand it. Uh, but fishing communities are near the water. So sea level rise combined with uh, severe weather means uh, vulnerability is going to go up. Uh, whether it's loss of wetlands or whether it's storm surge, uh, it means uh, that communities at the water's edge are going to be increasingly at risk. And so communities need to understand what that risk is, how is it increasing, what steps can be taken now. Uh, because if you take steps now, it's cheaper than if you wait till Superstorm Sandy hits you. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And so uh, Sarah's sending daggers at me. I think we're getting close to your time, but I want, don't want to end on uh, climate change because I think that that's, uh, that's a tough place to end any, yeah. any discussion. So instead, quickly, I'd love to hear what your hope for the future of the fishing industry is. Um, you know, not only just in your tenure here, but looking into the future, what do you, where do we hope, where do you hope that we get to as a fishing industry? So I, I think uh, uh, I have uh, tremendous respect for fishermen, um, and and I think that uh, fish stocks can be rebuilt. I think fishermen are tremendously entrepreneurial, uh, and so when they face uh, an obstacle here, they figure out a way around it. Uh, and I think that with the, the councils we work with, uh, we can develop management plans uh, that rebuild stocks. Uh, and there may be uh, one or two exceptions with climate change uh, where uh, we'll see stocks uh, disappear. I think the jury's out, in my uh, opinion, with cod. I don't know whether cod is is something that's, you know, just because of climate change going to leave the building. Uh, but there are other stocks that are going to come in. Uh, but, you know, so I think that we should always have a wild harvest fishery. And I think we are going to see explosive growth in aquaculture. So I think there's going to be uh, jobs and, uh, and working waterfronts up and down this coast. Uh, and I think those jobs are, uh, and the people who have those jobs are, you know, they're wonderful people and wonderful jobs. And, and those working waterfronts, that's why I took the job, are, uh, are going to be saved and they're going to be preserved. Uh, uh, not by me, because, you know, I probably will retire, in, in, you know, in the not too distant future but by the young folks like you, Sarah, you know, and others. Uh, and uh, all of that is, uh, is very possible. And uh, there's no reason, Gloucester's been a fishing port for 400 years, uh, that, you know, that shouldn't be going on for another 400 years. 
So we changed the dress a little bit, but the soul stays the same. Absolutely. All right. I think that's a great spot to end. John Bullard, thank you so much for joining me uh, today. It's been a lot of fun, and it's uh, always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Ben. So that was our interview with John Bullard, the regional administrator for NOAA Fisheries in New England uh, and the Mid-Atlantic. And I really want to thank John for taking the time to sit down with me and answer our questions, tell us some stories about his life and, and why he's engaged in dealing with fisheries issues in New England. Uh, I also want to thank Sarah Heil, who is on staff for John Bullard and helped set up that uh, interview. And um, just really appreciate all the work that John and his staff have been doing to help make fisheries in New England uh, keep moving forward. So thank you, John, for that. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. I think we're, uh, we'll have a, a new show uh, in line. I think we are still trying to line up a, a tuna show. So that would be really exciting. So stick with us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Maine Coast Dock Talk is a product of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. This episode was produced by me and Emily Tucker.